Welcome to Small Biz Matters with Alexi Boyd. Whether you're listening live on the Community Radio Network or via podcast, here's the show where you learn from experts, be inspired by journeys, and discover more about making your small business a success. I'm Alexi Boyd, broadcaster, advocate, and small business owner. Let's meet today's guest. It's our 200th show, everyone. Hooray! Very exciting to have reached this milestone, and I can think of no one better than today's guest to join me. Another powerhouse, another female powerhouse of small business advocacy. We're talking all about small business, but in a particular area of Australia and how they are faring. So in the last 12 months, policymakers, regional communities, corporates and small businesses all sat up and have taken notice of remote working. But it's not a new normal for regional communities. Part of the evolution of the tree change, sea change concept is the move towards working remotely. So corporate does it, government does it. But for once, small business has been a little bit slow off the mark, slow to adapt to a sensible way to grow. Is it because we're scared of employing in Australia, generally, thanks to our archaic employment laws? Or is it the tyranny of distance, which is ironic, or a mistrust in internet capacity? Or has the offshoring process simply become too easy and switching back to bringing the jobs, money and employment back home again seeming too hard? So here to talk to us through the processes, the new innovations, the myths and the wonderful impact this has had on regional communities is Jo Palmer. One can only describe her as a powerhouse for regional Australia. She speaks for communities, she offers actual solutions which make a difference and she's basically a person who gets it done. Welcome to the show Jo. Thanks for having me. What an introduction. Well, it's well earned. You have multiple awards, multiple recognition, and uh, you are one of those people who actually advocate for small business, and you're actually an advocate for small business. Fancy that. I mean, you really live, sleep, eat, and breathe the journey that not only the people that you work with through Point to Remote, but also uh, the communities that you've lived in, and you extend your reach beyond the borders of just the town that you reside in to uh, to really be a spokesperson for all people out there, particularly in small business. So thank you, firstly, for the, the work that you do for the small business community in general. Um, so I want to talk to you today, uh, touching a little bit on what we've spoken about in the past, which is all about remote work. But also I want to find out what it's been like in the last 12 months to get a real insight into what those small business regional communities have gone through. So firstly, for those out there who don't understand what remote work is, <laughs> anyone who's been living in, under a box. Uh, but what does it mean for people in regional communities, this, in, this embracing of the concept of remote working? Well, I know we can laugh and I think that I sometimes have to remind myself that this is still a new thing. And I think that realistically the, the, the best thing to open with is the fact that I I genuinely would not say that what has happened in the last 12 months is remote work. Last 12 months has been crisis management. It has been um, transitioning without planning. It has been um, pretty much just doing things on a whim and trying to work out how to fix things afterwards. So I think it's been both a blessing and a curse for the remote work world um, the last 12 months, a blessing in that people who had resisted forever in saying this doesn't work, this wouldn't work for our company, 
how will I know they're working if I if I can't see them if they're at home? What if they're in their pajamas all day? What if all they do is they're washing? All of those those myths that I spent the the first three years of our business um, trying to bust when anyone would listen to me. Um, I think that what has actually happened has been that people were forced into something. Um, people don't like change genuinely. And I think that um, being forced into a situation with extreme growing pains, with not just um, the stress of having to work out how you're going to do work, but doing it in a really stressful situation where people's home life was really challenging, having spouses and kids at home. Um, and also the fact that it was actually really stressful with this uncertainty around what was going on outside as well and on a global stage. So I think that remote work has, while the, the like I said, the, the blessing of it being that people have been exposed to it, um, I think the curse has been that a lot of them have been exposed to it in a really how not to do things. So I feel like... Um, the next 12 to 18 months is going to be a really interesting time. And I think that small business have a huge opportunity to actually stop and take stock and say, okay, what were the things that really worked and what were really good and how can we leverage them in our business? And the things that didn't actually work for you and your organisation, you can shelve them. Maybe don't shelve them forever because they may not have worked because of all those stresses and timing and things that I mentioned earlier. But I think it's a really good time to have a look at um, all, the, all those good bits that you can take from it and see moving forward what works for your organisation. Is that the same for small businesses in regional communities as well as those in the city? Because I think that um, there's a certain resilience piece that um, businesses who are not in a major city are really good at. I mean, you guys have bounced back from uh, natural disasters, from, um, you know, communities being shut down because people are leaving um, en masse and then suddenly you've got this massive influx back into those communities again and there is a resilience piece in a community coming together. Have all of those skills enabled small businesses in regional communities to be more hardy and ready for COVID or are you just like everyone else and have just been going through the roller coaster? Um, I think a bit of both. I think that um, I think sometimes, you know, the media throws that, ah, oh, look at those country bumpkins. They're all so resilient and they get through all these droughts and floods and fires and now let's just throw a pandemic in the mix and look at them bouncing back. I think um, I think businesses in rural areas do business differently. They do and have done business differently forever in that you you have to... I think like really relationships and community really impact how you run a successful business and you watch the businesses that don't make that connection between community and connection and they don't last as long or they're not as successful and they're not as resilient and they don't bounce back. But I think that, that businesses, and look, do you know what, if you, you think about that in, in the, the main drag of, of Hornsby as well, though, if you look at those, um, any metro area that has a, uh, a, a high street, as the, the Brits would call it, but you watch those stores that turn over and the ones that stay put and, you know, those, those I'm sure there's some in, in Hornsby that are there that have been there for 35 years and those are the ones that have got that concept of, of community and respect for your customers and those sorts of things because people will then support you. And I think that that's a really key thing for business in 
rural Australia is that if you don't or if you don't acknowledge and you underestimate what that means, then you don't have that, I think, that mm. that built-in resilience piece. But, again, like I think we have to do business differently a lot of the time. We deal with slower postage and freight times. We deal with internet and connection issues. We deal with, although actually I shouldn't say that that's isolated to the regions either, but um, those are those are quite often challenges that businesses in rural areas and then the more remote you get, those challenges are obviously amplified. But I think um, I think that you're, you're probably correct in saying that there was almost um, this built-in resilience piece that was almost a little bit more prepared for COVID. And I think that the coming off the back of a, of a pretty horrific drought, I think, for a lot of areas, that had sort of made people thinking, like, hang on, we've got to be doing this differently. Like, And the success of the Buy From The Bush campaign and it's Exhibit A of why that um, was such a big thing in that people realised, hang on, I have to actually start doing things differently. Like, there's some huge percentage still of Australian business that don't have a website, which I, that's, it still actually blows my mind. And I think that considering that you can get a website up and running and even someone with only the most basic, basic of tech skills can get that happening or you get someone to do it for you, let me know if you need someone to do that for you. <laughs> but I think that um, people have really realised that like you can run a business from anywhere and your customers can be everywhere. And I think COVID has just really reaffirmed that for a lot of people. Yeah, let me ask you about that disparity um, because I'm when I look at what the services are that government organisations at the local, the state and the federal offer, there's so much around digital transformation and digital um, setup and just getting digitised. And I think to myself surely surely they're, they're, they're everyone's got online now and everyone's there and so what you're saying is there is a great disparity in the more regional communities that they're still not online even after um, the hit of a pandemic and realizing they needed to pivot and even after all this government support there's still uh, uh, it's still lacking in your opinion yeah but I don't even think it's it's isolated to the regions from what I gather some of the statistics that I've seen there's still businesses in metro areas that their 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 contact to the outside world is a Facebook page which I think in recent months is something that we really need to have a good hard look at if that's the only way that you're reaching your customers or that your customers can find you is with your business Facebook page like it's a really dangerous way of doing business I think as we've seen that they can very easily overnight switch things off and I think that you having something that you own and have the rights to in a website that again it can just be one page one page that people can click through to that's got your phone number and an email address like those sorts of things Um, but I agree there has been so much support around this but I think if you then stop and have a think about it a lot of this support is self-paced support and it's you finding the time to read or watch content or those things and you think about most small businesses feel like they're on a hamster wheel of just doing the stuff, Mm. doing the everyday, throw a pandemic in, throw a drought in, throw now flooding in. The thought of like doing a a 14 or 15 hour day to then go and homeschool yourself on improving your digital literacy. Like I just, it's, it's not a thing. I just genuinely think that that is a huge roadblock is that by the time people get home and the the head hits the pillow, they actually couldn't think of anything worse about like, oh gosh, I really should be getting ourselves online. And I think that that was such a huge challenge for 
so many organisations that had been on that hamster wheel for so long and then all of a sudden you can't go into the office when there's a when there's a global pandemic like we we're, we're dealing with a with a law firm in um, a city and they had 800 staff that had to go home overnight and they were a paper-based firm Ouch. they didn't nothing was cloud-based they didn't have anything like most of the teams didn't even have laptops because they did everything in the office on a desktop so the challenges that businesses like that, like that's a that's a relatively large organisation with 18 staff, I mean 800 staff, sorry, but like that would have been exactly the case. We had local governments ringing saying, oh, the, the admin staff are, are taking their, their desktops home. And I was like, well, do they have laptops? Well, no. Well, if you want them to work, they're going to, those are the things that they're going to have to do. But, oh, but the protocol, I was like, okay, we're in uncharted territory here. You're going to have to to lax the rules a bit to get this to happen and for everyone to actually be able to still keep doing what they need to do. So did you find yourself, you know, being approached by large firms? You are, you know, considered the expert in remote working and have been well known for that for the number of, a number of years. Did you literally have government bodies on the phone going, what do we do? And, and really, if you were giving that advice to a small business owner who was... Um, if you if you could take yourself back, what would be the th- three things that you would say to them to do if they had to pivot quickly into remote work? I know I know we've all done this, but I think it's worth stopping and taking stock and realizing what the process was because we all did, as you said, we did it in such a flurry. Mm. Well, I think that that's an interesting concept that I know even thinking back, but realistically, draw a line in the sand, and this can be the time, and it might be today that you're like, okay yes, we got to this stage and we've made it to here. Okay, we're still going. We're still in business. There's still money in the bank. Yay, well done, yes. (laughs) Congratulations to all of you that are in that camp. I think that um, you can stop and take stock now and do exactly the same thing as this. So I'd say three things to think about. I think that, well, look, rather than going retrospectively back because what's done is done, maybe it's it's better going going forward. I'm just sort of thinking because I would give actually slightly different advice. I think moving forward, if you did see some positives and your staff, I think also you as a business owner also need to be able to try and be in the, the mindset of your staff as well. So if you are someone that is an extrovert, that loves going to the office, that loves eyeballing your team and loves that interaction with people, this would have been a really tough time and I sympathise with you. Like that's a, it's really tough going if that's the energy that you feed off your team and things. If you have a think or even go as far as lashing out and asking your team what sorts of things did you like, what did you not like, what could we do to incorporate moving forward, Asking the people that work for you is a really good hot tip because they will, hopefully you've created a culture that will um, allow them to answer properly. And that's something that we've, we do as small businesses very well. We do it better than big business. We interact with our staff. But like you said, we've had that ripped away from us in a lot of cases. Or suddenly everybody working remotely has meant that we've lost that connectivity. So even having this discussion means that you're reconnecting with your staff and thinking again about what did they learn, how can I incorporate it, asking the questions and almost rebuilding that fabric of, um, of, of collaboration that you had prior to the pandemic. 100% because I think if you think of that as a real positive that you you can say, okay, um, you're demonstrating to your team that you appreciate what they their experience was. 
um, what you you appreciate, what their opinions are moving forward. You can really gauge what works. And I think that as soon as you start displaying those sorts of behaviours in this new light and new way forward, that that's how you get longevity out of your staff. If your staff sort of think, oh, hang on, like the boss is actually considering what I liked from that. And in the old days, they they were the extrovert that wanted us in the office nine to five and I don't have a client-facing job. And realistically, I found that I got up at Sparrows and did a few hours before the kids got up and did that and then I did school run and all of those things and then got back to my desk and I was actually really productive. I actually would love to do maybe three days from home and two days in the office because then I still get to keep the energy up and the same people. And I think moving forward, I think what a lot of small business will look at is that hybrid model. Mm. So that getting people in for bits and pieces of the week and then um, being a lot more flexible. And I think that the outcomes they're going to see, if they manage this well, the outcomes they're going to see are, increased productivity and effectiveness of their team because their team then is taking ownership of where they do their best work. Like you're paying someone, get the best work out of them. And if that happens to be at 5am at home, four mornings a week, and that they come in until, I don't know, they might come in for in the afternoons, maybe like whatever that works. Just make sure it's within fair work legislation. 100%. If you can make the, if you can make that, that work for your team, I think, like I said, you will see increased productivity, but I think you will also see increased retention rates in Mm. your team. Like, because I think that businesses that don't learn something from the last 12 months and incorporate it in some way, you might be able to bumble along for the next 12 or 18 months but you will then start losing your good ones to your competitors that are offering flexibility. An excellent point. I hands down think that that's where we're going to go moving forward. And, look, I speak to people from small businesses through to all three tiers of government, and you're hard-pressed finding someone these days that's not like, oh, I still do the old day from home. Or do you know what? I hardly go into the office anymore. And do you know what? It works for me. I'm getting all my work done. I'm taking the good that came from last year, which was more interactions with families, just feeling less bonkers because I've cut even eight hours of a commute out of my week. Um, I still go in and do, like I sort of think a lot of people, especially in cities in like in Sydney, in Melbourne, that are people that have forever been on a train or a bus or driving into town to do a non-client facing job on the sole like reason behind the fact that one, the business has paid exorbitant amounts of rent for a high rise in the city, but two, that we keep falling back on this, oh, but the company culture the company, we lose culture. The if we're water not cooler. Yeah, that, that, oh, but yeah, we're not interacting and we're not collaborating. And I sort of, my pushback on that is how inclusive was that culture in the, in the first place? Like if your culture was dependent on everyone head down, bum up all day on the computer, but the culture piece happened after works, work when we all went and had a drink and did all those things, have a think back to who it was that actually was going and doing that. Was it the people with small children that needed to get back to daycare before it closed? Like is it someone who is going to then have to sit in the car for an hour and a half, get home, can they go and have a few drinks and then drive home? Like have a think back to this this culture that we're that we're racing back to in the office and have a think about how inclusive it actually was for your whole team. 
Exactly. And there's so many good points there with, with that analysis and the taking stock and, and sitting back and looking at what the last 12 months did and actually having a chat to your staff about what they want moving forward. We're going to take a quick break here on Triple H 100.1 FM. And when we return, we'll speak more to Joe Palmer about the advice that she has been giving to the corporate world that small business can take moving forward after the experience of rem- remote work has changed so much. You're listening to Triple H. We'll be back after this. This episode of Small Biz Matters is proudly sponsored by the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman's Office. Led by Kate Carnell since its establishment only four years ago, Aspifio has provided education, advocacy and support, including free assistance if a small business is involved in a dispute. The office also provides assistance for disputes that fall under the franchising, dairy, horticultural and oil industry codes. Kate Carnell, as an independent advocate for small business owners, has the legislative power to influence our nation's lawmakers, ensuring legislation and regulations are put in place to help small businesses grow and in these times, survive. Small businesses are the engine room of the economy and it's Aspifio's role to do all they can to ensure they have the freedom to innovate, employ and thrive well into the future. So we are back in the room today talking to Joe Palmer and if you've just joined us you can of course catch up via smallbizmatters.com.au and podcasts and iTunes and Spotify because today is our 200th show which is so exciting Um, and it's great to have another passionate small business advocate on the program. Now just before the break Joe, you were telling us all about um, the top tips that you've given businesses who are coming out of this process of COVID and what learnings they need to take with us. So you mentioned that um, talking to your staff, finding out what they appreciated and enjoyed about this change and taking that moving forward. What's another great top tip that you would suggest to small businesses as we move on from, um, from not just moving on from remote work, but take with us the learnings from it? Um, I think that we underestimate how much um, company and team culture actually well, one, it's so vital to your business and, again, that retention of your staff and the enjoyment that everyone gets out of going to work. But I, I think we underestimate, even in a pre-COVID world, underestimate that act- that actually needs some brain power put to it and you actually do need to think about that and actively manage it. And that is something that as we move forward, if you are transitioning to a fully remote setup, if you haven't done that before, you would do things very differently to that of which, say, an organisation that is moving to this hybrid model that we talked about. But I think that just winging it and hoping that it will work is not a fabulous idea. I think that Again, engaging with your team and talking about how people are going to do their best job, how people, um, like having an understanding of how the rest of the people in your team work. So we're big advocates for the concept of a communication charter or a a communication one-pager that you use within your organisation. And again, even if you're not doing any bits of remote work, realistically, you should probably have one of these if everyone's in the office nine to five anyway. But I think something that is really, really valuable and really important for the success of organisations moving forward, however you're running, is being really explicit with how you communicate. And I think that that is something we haven't done well, and particularly in small business, we don't do well because 
you think about how small businesses evolve, they're generally because someone either didn't like the job they had and they turned a hobby into a small business that all of a sudden went gangbusters and you then all of a sudden have staff and you all of a sudden then are are running this thing called a business and apparently there's rules and regulations and taxes to pay and all of these things. But for many people, especially those that fall into a small business and fall into managing teams, you actually really need to think about how you're managing that culture. So we really recommend things. And look, I'll give you some examples of things that we include in our like communication charter. So I run a completely distributed team. So my, my team, um, I'm based about half an hour south of Wagga in Southern New South Wales. I've got, um, Two girls, in one in central West New South Wales, one in northern New South Wales, one in central Victoria, one in northwest Tasmania and one in the Wheatbelt in WA. And I feel sometimes it's easier to run that than it is a, a hybrid model. We're not sort of trying to balance that, oh, yeah, I said that in the lunchroom to all those people, but I haven't thought to tell the remotees. Like that, that's where it becomes really challenging and that's where you need to be really prescriptive. Pres- prescriptive, prescriptive, sorry, with your communication and how you do it. So some examples of how we um, do things in our team is that we have a no internal email policy. We don't do any emails to each other. Everything is kept in our um, chat and chat is done in specific channels in the chat so that people can go back and track where they're going if they're on a certain topic, if they want to be able to find things again. Can I ask you which piece of software, what type of software do you use for for those comms? So we have actually one that was built into our recruitment platform. We have a whole CRM recruitment platform, our internal chat. So that's not a perfect example. But for another example, we are building another tech product that we use with our tech team and my team. We use Slack. Again, a free... um, a free software, um, Google it if you haven't heard of it. It's fabulous. You can have lots of people in there. You can talk in channels. Slack's fabulous in that you can actually share files. You can dump Zoom links in there. You can do all sorts of things, but you can also search in there. So if you think, oh, I messaged someone about that, you can actually search that and it will find your messages. It will find documents that you've shared and all of those sorts of things. So it's a really handy tool. Um, another bit of advice that we do actually do with people as far as their communication when they've got a hybrid setup is this rule of thumb that if even one person is not going to attend a meeting in person, then no one does it in person. So if there's going to be one person that would have been sitting either up on a screen or talking through the plastic box on the table, if there's only, if, even if there's one person that's not going to be physically involved in that meeting, don't run the meeting physically. Everyone surely, go back to their desk. Surely we've moved on from that. I mean, surely the, there's, why do you say that? What is it about, is it the culture? What, what is it that you say that it's, it's not acceptable to have a screen on a desk with a person hovering in it like Max Headroom? Do you know what? To be honest, I think it actually makes everyone be a lot more accountable in the meeting. You watch how much quicker that meeting goes because they're not sort of fluffing around. But forever there is still that, oh, is the person in the middle switched on? Oh, there's too much. There's side chat. They can't actually hear what's going on. They are missing the like the cues that you get, those visual cues. They are 
often missing the vibe of a room if they can't sort of see, touch, feel. And I think that equaliser of having everyone on the screen, everyone being able to hear properly, if people can't attend the meeting, being able to record it, it's just there's so many positives of being able to treat your business I think the best way when you're doing, especially in a hybrid model, is that think remote first. So we're a remote first organisation. Yes, we happen to have an office, but the decisions that you make on how you communicate with your team and how you're managing the people, think about it with a remote first thing. So how will this affect the people not physically in the office? Let's do it that where it's conducive to them because it will only ever be conducive to those people in the office as well. So if it, if it, if it works for the remoters, it will work for those in the office it can't be the same said for, for vice versa. Great piece of advice. So, so far you've mentioned the fact that it's a good idea to, uh, just to recap, uh, it's a good idea to talk to your team and find out what learnings they benefited from in the last 12 months. What would they like to take moving forward? What did they like about the change to the way they worked and, and how it gave them a little bit more work-life balance? And then importantly, what is it about... Um, uh, what is it about the the process that you're going to do moving forward as well? So, what's is this is this what you talk about when you talk about the tools that you offer? Is that um, top tips on what to do moving forward, working with your team? Mm, well, I think as well, like a really important thing to do is actually to check in again with your team and maybe pull out job descriptions and and pull out what their actual job is and what the tasks are and and actually has that changed and just to make sure also that you haven't with this new way of working loaded up your staff inadvertently without realizing and that you're actually your expectations of them are now higher without a reassessment of their pay or are they actually hitting KPIs or are they being effective at all those things because you've possibly loaded them up more with this supposed newfound flexibility. Um, also, vice versa, is that you actually, they may be doing things far more efficiently. They're the systems and processes that you've had to put in place for this flexibility and for that 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 inclusion of some form of remote work, you might find that your systems have actually tightened things up and your your people are running more effectively and stuff. And you actually, they might be finding that um, there is room to pick up more things, more responsibility, possibly promote someone. Imagine that. Um, well, when I think was the last time we we ever looked at those at those job descriptions from the time that we actually employed people? That's a real failure of small businesses in a lot of ways. And it's a good 100%. time to take stock, yeah. 100%. Because I think, like I said, you we talked very briefly about how small businesses evolve quite often and all of a sudden you've got 25 staff and you're like, how did that happen? Um, quite often you haven't once then again re-looked at the, the, the job description that may be five or ten years old. And if your business hasn't changed in that long, then um, there's probably also some other things that you need to drill down into and have a look at. But um, I think that it's a really valuable time to sit down and have a look and say, okay, have our systems and processes made things more efficient or could we make these systems and processes more efficient to make people's days look different? Um, maybe it maybe is a time to consider, hang on, so-and-so had always wanted to work a four-day week. Is this something that we can possibly do now? Like if we are running a tighter ship, like just really having a look and really engaging your team because, again, I think that that's what we are not great at doing in small business because 
like I said earlier, you as the business owner are quite often head down, bum up, and you are putting out spot fires and the work that you do is reactive in regards to your team. And I think that this is such a beautiful opportunity at the moment to be really being proactive and actually I know all those dreaded things of, I'm not saying go and pull out a a 20-page business plan and redo the thing, but actually actually have a look and say, have our company values changed now? Have the values that we um, are are embracing for our customers because our product has changed because we've had to adapt? And has that that meant that there's like a values change within the business as well? Because if you reassess that, it actually can then really impact, again, the job descriptions, what your people are actually doing. Like I think it's such an interesting time now to be looking at all aspects of your business. It's so important as well to take stock um, every so often. But sometimes all those things that you've described can feel a little bit overwhelming, particularly when you're in the middle of a business. And if, if you're going through a hugely successful phase, maybe now's a good time to look at a change management um, uh, consultant to assist you with this process because it could be a real turning point for your business to um, bring someone in to help you reevaluate, like you said, what the um, what the values are that lead into what your staff do that lead into your processes and procedures, and then you can accelerate because unless you really understand what's going on with your business and your staff really understand it uh, and able to take a step back, you're just going to keep like a hamster on the wheel, keep doing the same thing over and over again, keep, as you described, putting out spot fires. So, Joe, I wanted to ask you as well about um, the impact that, that COVID has had in the regional areas in regards to the physical location. So I know that a lot of um, businesses have decided to relocate or their staff have relocated into regional areas. What impact has that had on communities in the bush? And is it positive or negative, do you think? Um, Both. (laughs) Both. Housing prices, first thing you think of. Yeah, 100%. And I know that um, that that sort of Valhalla that the the regions have have promoted to the to metro people to attract them to relocate so those um lower house prices and less commute and all of those things yes yes that is real uh gee whiz it's been pretty crazy and you look at our regional centers now so your woggers your dubbos your tamworths you are hard pressed finding a house let alone a cheap one, just a house to either buy or rent. Um, I know that up the coast is just so crazy and it's actually causing quite serious social issues as far as housing. Like that is actually a really big challenge. But we've been talking about affordable housing in regional areas for decades. Is this a failure of government that... Okay, they couldn't have predicted what just happened in the last 12 months, but couldn't they have had things in place um, to ensure that affordable housing can become available faster when sudden influxes do happen into a town? Was was anybody forward thinking like that or is the government being reactive just like everyone else? No, look, I think it's on a shire-by-shire basis. Like, I think, I think that the rural... The rural councils that have really done well on this are the ones that have made it easy to build houses. They have planned for growth. They have planned for those services, your power, your sewerage, those sorts of things on the off chance that people will do this. Um, I think those are the ones that 
are faring better. But I say that there is then a huge skill shortage. So we haven't got enough builders and plumbers and electricians and all of these trades to build new houses, to renovate all of the ones that are being bought. Like there is a genuine shortage of that. So if you're listening to this and you're a trade, feel free to move west because holy hat, you'll live like a king out here and make plenty of money. But again, bring with you a caravan or somewhere to live until you can build your own house because there's no What can the government do to, should the government be, it sounds to me like they're throwing all their eggs in one basket. Yes, there's JobKeeper and that's been fantastic and there are other incentives in place. But when they talk about industry incentive, um, industry specific incentives, should it be more area specific? You're, You're isolating quite a distinct and obvious problem. To me, the solution to that is take some government funding, offer rebates for moving costs for trade people to move into an area to solve this problem, even if it's short term. Um, I just don't feel as though there's any government policy in and around that that's answering these questions that people like you as advocates are posing to to government. I think um, the being specific rather than move to regional New South Wales, I think is um, probably causing a bit of a challenge as far as um, because people want to go to, they like change, but not too much change. So that's why you go to a regional centre where, look, Wagga is a perfect example. I can fly to Sydney uh, six or seven times a day and Melbourne four times a day. There's that many flights. There is a train that goes in both. Like we are really connected here. There's a cinema, there is malls, there is all the doctors, all the surgeries, all the different things. Like there is medical specialists and all of these sorts of things in a regional centre. I think where there is huge opportunity is when government supports the rural community. So going that further than 100k radius of a regional centre, that's where you've got space, that's where you've got opportunity to grow, to build housing, to do those sorts of things, I think that's where there's huge opportunity and I feel like that's where where we're missing the boat. And I think that where it, the local governments also need support on how that looks, like on how to actually make a housing development work, like not just depending on a, on a developer to come in and put their cash up, like how can they be supporting in that way because that all the onus is on the developer that way and all the risk is on the developer. Like how can local government work in, um, in partnership with development? I think we've, um, I've literally just been at a conference in Canberra and this was pretty much the main topic around um, affordable housing um, access to housing just in general, but where um, I don't think it falls on any one particular organisation or government or individual shoulders, it needs to be something that's dealt with as a, as a collaborative mm. piece because it is a definite issue. And I think, um, I don't know though, but the silver lining of it, there is also with these challenges, there's so much opportunity and I sort of think about like especially trades, like if you're in a, a metro area and you're still talking about that hamster wheel where, yeah, you're busy, but you're also paying an enormous mortgage off and you're finding that you're driving all over Sydney to do that work, of simplifying of going and going to a rural town and you being one of very few builders, if anything, there or a plumber or whatever, the, the world's your oyster and you can have that work-life balance of not having to 
be on the road all the time to get the work. The work is literally there and the community is there and, and move your family. That's what I'm really seeing is such a huge opportunity is that these rural towns, like you play tennis, you've got a tennis club that you can play two nights a week at a tennis club there and there's a local swimming pool and that access to sport and that feeling of community that a lot of people I think are nostalgic for and are really feeling that they're they're missing out on in a lot of metro areas like that that actually is what is real and I think that that we're not promoting that enough. Okay so what I want to ask you is if if you had a wish list where does the the power and the decision making process need to lie do you believe it should be more in the hands of local government local people local communities or does this need to have a top-down approach that state potentially even federal government, although I would be reluctant to say this would be relevant for them, but maybe. Where do you think um, the decision-making process needs to lie to give communities, regional communities, the best opportunity to make the most of this moving forward? That's a really hard question, Alexi. But someone needs to know the answer. Someone needs to know. I feel like you're putting a lot of responsibility on me to answer that, to solve all of rural Australia's problems in one answer. Well, you are a powerhouse. I did describe oh, it. Oh, apparently, back the apparently. Yes, thank yes. you. I feel like you're putting lots of responsibility. It's not being um, recorded. It's fine. Yeah, to be to be honest, I I don't think it can be just one. I genuinely don't. And I think that that's really tough because when it's not allocated to someone, then no one does it. Mm-hmm. It's like, again, going back to even just our communication rules and our our company to-do list, we use a, a, a software to with like all of our to-do lists and things and nothing can have more than one person's name on it. It has to end and someone has to take ownership for even little tasks like who's posting the thing in the blog this week. Like it has to land on someone and I know. So I'm really dancing around your answer there. So I look, I think that there is responsibility and roles need to be played by all players I think what we've got a huge challenge is is that and it's going to be interesting to see with JobKeeper finishing up and with people sort of out of the habit of working there is a huge huge amount of work around and I think people thinking outside the box of what that work looks like so I think that that's a big thing to start with so we say decentralise, move to the country. There's lots of jobs here. Okay, well, I think we need to be more specific with what those jobs are. I think that how, I don't know, gosh, I think that I would be a very wealthy person if I could come up with an idea of how you get um, people that are transitioning from government assistance as far as JobKeeper or long-term welfare um, into work that quite often can be physical. That is also a challenge. I don't know how you encourage that unless you incentivise with other things like affordable housing. Again, it comes back to where do people live to do the work Mm. as well. Um, I think um, supporting, like I said, local government to help remove those bottlenecks as far as development and planning, but that at the same time, don't go bananas and actually put housing estates on arable farming land, like actually look at the the physicality of the environment around so that we don't then find, oh, hang on, we've built all these these big towns and hang on, we still need to feed these people and there's nowhere to put a crop in because there's now houses on there. So actually looking at the 
the less arable land to put housing estates on. Um, oh, look, I, and I, I can see why everyone gets in a tangle. I have, I, I just don't know. Like, it's a really big challenge. But I think what needs to happen is that it needs to not be one or the other and it needs to be business, so big business, government, but also small business and entrepreneurs and startups and those doing things differently, we need to be engaging with them. And I think that quite often, and I say this because I feel like I live in this space of government and big organisations don't want to look at startups or things that are a bit rogue because there's no track record. There, there's no, oh, but what if they're out of business in, in, in two years or those sorts of things? Like they're not willing to do that out-of-box thinking or to look at, because do you know what? There is, and I saw, I met two of them last week, there are startups and small businesses that have social housing solutions and they have housing solutions that are really quick and easy to roll out but there's that tension between does government support a relatively small business like one of them being this incredible um prefab housing that can be built arrives on a truck that doesn't look like a, a plonker the traditional plonker that is green that is warm and insulated that has solar that is a really eco-friendly social housing thing that has that comes with terms so that it is a maybe a rent to buy for low income earners or it will solely be zoned as short to medium term housing that will always be rented it won't be put on the market for say a, a 20 year period and that will be something that will be mandated by the council like there are solutions and it's how do we get government to be like, do you know what? Like, let's at least give this a go. Let's run some pilots. Let's get some of these things happening and then let the results happen. You can keep going with this slow motion, archaic stuff with whatever you've been doing in the past. Go nuts, keep doing that. But I think that some of the some of the pie needs to be carved off and to give these other ideas a go. And that realistically would be my suggestion because... Well- it, There's people doing really cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, and that sums it up beautifully, really. It's it's all about listening to all the different sectors of the small business and the economy itself and making sure that everybody's speaking to one another and giving the people who are coming up with social solutions a chance um, to fail. I, I think that's what the government has a real fear of, a, a, fail, a fear of failure and a fear of misinvestment because they haven't taken a chance on something that might actually work. Look, Joe, I could talk to you for another hour about solving Australia's economic problems because I think between you and I, We've got this nailed. It's all it's all fine. We just need to keep talking and eventually we'll find solutions to every single problem facing small business. But this is why I adore having you on the program. You're thought-provoking. You think outside the box, but you have the experience, the know-how and the touch points within your local community and also beyond to really understand what's going on in the world of small business. Joe, how can people get in touch with you, find out more about what you're doing and um, more about Pointer Remote? Um, well, you can head to our website, which is pointerremote.com.au. Um, I am in LinkedIn most days if you want to connect with me directly. And I really, I really like that's a genuine offer. And I really like um, connecting with people. If you have got especially um, a, a passion or your business or organisation, um, thinks outside the box with how you engage people, if you realise that 
geographic diversity is another bit of the diversity thing that you need to consider in your business, especially if you're a metro-based business. Like a third of Australia lives in the bush. Like if you're trying to sell products or services to a national level, like it's really interesting when you have someone that's born and bred working in your organisation and they can shine a light on the holes in your business or especially your marketing um, marketing plans. So, um, yeah, Joe Palmer on LinkedIn, find me there. But, yeah, like I just I always encourage people to have a bit of a think of next time that they are employing someone and, and think about it. Does that person physically need to be in your office or in your building? And if they don't, then would you consider someone working remotely for you? And if you do, would you consider someone that lives west of the Great Divide? Because Fantastic. I've got them for you. And I'm sure you've got wonderful people knowing your connectivity with others and the way that you manage people. We can we can hear that in your voice and a wonderful plethora of options there as part of Pointer Remote. Joe, thank you so much for joining me on the program once again. I'm really looking forward to our next conversation in another few months. Thanks for having me. This week's episode was proudly broadcast from Triple H Studios in Sydney, Australia and sponsored by the Office of the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman. If you've enjoyed listening, go ahead and give us some thank you stars on your podcasting platform. It would be much appreciated. Then head to the Small Biz Matters website where you can listen to over 170 episodes, read more about our speakers and find out how to become a media partner. See you all next time. Oh, 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 oh,